0: Proverbs from Ecclesiastes. So this section, starting in chapter 9 and verse number 11, uh, and then continuing on to the next uh, chapter and a half, have a lot of unconnected uh, Proverbs, and so an outline for it is going to be tough, but what I'm going to do is start out by looking at the last part of chapter number 9, which will help us, I think, to interpret rightly and to use the Proverbs in our life. So we'll just go section by section and um, consider what the the preacher is telling us here in Ecclesiastes. So in verse number 9 of chapter 11, it says, I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor riches to the men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill. But time and chance happeneth to them all. Life is not fair. One thing Ecclesiastes does for us is gives us this slice of wisdom we all need to consider. Life just isn't always fair. Um, I learned that lesson playing sports as a kid. You play sports and you learn pretty pretty early on that um, sometimes the best players don't make the all-star team. Sometimes kids whose dad makes a lot of money, um, their kid's get the best positions, or maybe they get uh, spots where the better players would uh, deserve to be there. Sometimes the best team loses because of a bad call by a bad official, and that's just not fair. Sometimes you can work hard, you can give it all that you got, and still lose because the opponent's worst player decided that day to hit his one and only home run. Sometimes in a boxing match, a right cross just at the right time at the right angle can knock the best boxer out. Sometimes a wise man ends up in poverty and the fool makes a killing and ends up being rich. Sometimes the master of a craft dies unknown in obscurity. If you don't know who um, uh, Johann Sebastian Bach is, you've heard uh, of some of his music. He's one of the great masters of Western music, a genius in, by all rights of music in the last thousand years. He's a famous composer now, but when he was alive, he was just trying to make a living feeding his family. He tried to get some gigs with royalty, and he ta- most of his life he taught music at the church and was the church organist. I read one story where a gardener, at this particular location, was taking some of his original music pieces and wrapping the roots of the plants when propagating the planting. So he'd propagate um, a flower or something and wrap the the roots up in one of his pieces of music. So it's hard to say how much of his music's been lost to history. And now considered one of the great musical geniuses in, in history, um, But not while he was living. While he was living, he was just a blue-collar type worker. Wasn't appreciated in his own time. So sometimes life just isn't fair, um, from what we look at, under the sun. But sometimes we're the underdog. Sometimes the little hobbit can do a great thing. Sometimes the more powerful foe is the evil one. Sometimes good is outmatched, and by God's grace, we endure Sometimes a small church can do mighty works for the Lord. The race isn't always to the swift. The battle's not always to the strong. Life is sometimes not fair. Life is unpredictable. So when we read Proverbs, we have to keep that in mind. Wisdom literature, the Proverbs are not... Axioms or mathematical formulas to guarantee your best life, but wisdoms and pro- wisdom and proverbs are statements of truth to guide you in walking in the fear of the Lord. Proverbs twenty two twenty nine says, "Seeest thou a man diligent in his business? He shall stand before kings. He shall not stand before mean men." That's that's true, but so is Ecclesiastes nine eleven. Sometimes a diligent man. In his business, a hard worker, a wise man has a business and then the government shuts it down because of COVID and he loses everything. So they're not, it's not um, a, a formula to say if you're diligent in your business and you work hard, then everything's going to turn out perfectly in your life. What it's saying is, is all things being equal, you work hard and you're diligent, the cream rises to the top. But sometimes the good guy gets a raw deal, and sometimes the bad guy um, gets stuff for nothing. Life is unpredictable. So we don't know how long we have left in this world. We don't know how many days we have. We don't know, um, we don't know the future. So verse 12, For man also knoweth not his time. Rise as the fishes that are taken in the evil net, and as the birds that are caught in the snare, so are the sons of men, snared in the evil time, when it falleth suddenly upon them. We're like fish swimming along, minding their own business, looking here and there for a bug to eat, and all of a sudden we're swooped up in the net, trapped, and it's all over with. Man knoweth not his time. We're just... We're just like those fish. And we don't know how many days we have left. And sometimes um, life is unfair. It's unpredictable. We might have plans for the future and maybe we don't have much of the future that we think that we've got. So wisdom literature helps us to navigate this life. Not to, to give up, but to rightly see how God has created this world and rightly to understand how we should live and how we should act. So if the good guy doesn't always win and sometimes the strong lose and sometimes the fastest man loses to the slower man, then what's the point? Well, verse 13 says, this wisdom have I seen under the sun and it seemed great unto me. There was a little city and a few within it. So here's a little story he tells. There was a little city, and a few within it, and there came a great king against it and besieged it, and built great bulwarks against it. Now there was found in, a, in it a poor wise man, and he by wisdom delivered the city, yet no man remembered that same poor man. Then said, I, wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. The words of wise men are heard, and quiet more than the cry of him that ruleth among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroyeth much good. So, is wisdom profitable? If life is unfair and life is un- uh, unpredictable, is it good to seek after wisdom? Well, here's a little story. There's a sparsely populated small little town, maybe like Clay, Clay is an, a nice place, but it's not equipped to stave off an attack if the Chinese military decided to come and take over. We'd be outmatched. Well, suddenly in our fictional town, a mighty warlord comes into this small little town to take it over. This warlord has strength. He has power. He has weapons. He has soldiers. He has the advantage of surprise on his side. Well, what could this small little town do? They don't have the tactical advantage. They don't have the weapons. They don't have the numbers. How could they win? Well, unbeknownst to anybody, this small little town had a secret weapon. There was a poor man in the village. And compared to the aggressor king, he was nothing. And most likely, he wasn't even much in the small town before the king came. But this poor man was wise. And by his wisdom, he came up with a plan to defeat this warlord, and to save the town from destruction, wisdom won the day. But this isn't a movie. In a movie, the wise man would be elected mayor and then maybe uh, president of the town. He would have uh, married the the good-looking lady down the street, and they would have made a statue in his honor and, and so forth. But they didn't make this poor man king, and they didn't build him a statue. In fact, the wise man who saved the day was forgotten. The wise man who came up with a plan to save the city saved the day, and then everybody just went on and forgot about him. His name was forgotten, his acts were forgotten, and everybody just went on with life. So Solomon says, better have wisdom than strength. But you have to understand that people want strength more than they do wisdom. In fact, no one wants to listen to wisdom. They want to listen to the powerful. They want to listen to the dynamic. So the words of the wise men are heard and quiet more than the cry of him that ruleth among fools. That's what people want to hear. It's better to have Samuel than to have Saul, but the people wanted Saul. It's better to have Paul than one of the Greek philosophers, but people didn't desire what Paul had to say. They wanted the orator. They wanted Flash. So wisdom goes unheard even though it's superior. So what are you supposed to do with that? Well, wisdom is better than weapons of war. It's better to have wisdom. But you have to understand that that the world in which we live in, a crooked world, is not going to agree with you. A crooked world isn't going to appreciate it, and oftentimes a crooked, crooked world is going to fight against it. But that doesn't diminish the superiority of wisdom. So as we look at these Proverbs, yes, it will guide us in how to live and all things being equal. Your life will be better off living by wisdom. But we also have to remember that we live in a crooked world. And the end result is not how much can we get out of life, but how can we glorify our Lord and Savior. It's better to walk in wisdom than it is to walk in folly for no other reason than to glorify our Lord Jesus Christ. Wisdom in a fallen world isn't appreciated. The prophet has no honor in his home country. The way of truth is sometimes a lonely life. Life isn't fair. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one city, one sinner can destroy a whole lot of good. I hear politicians laugh when they talk about the Second Amendment. They say that, um, well, our military has tanks and fighter jets and nuclear weapons, and you think um, even if the Second Amendment uh, was to, to defend your rights and freedom, you think you could do anything about this country? And they kind of laugh. I don't think it's funny for um, elected leaders to laugh about using the military against its own citizens. But besides that, it's just not true. It's not true because look look at our army. We fought uh, um, unequipped soldiers in Afghanistan for 20 years. Why? Well, it's not because we didn't have the firepower and it's not because our soldiers weren't brave and skilled and strong. We lost because we had fools getting into the war and fools running it. So wisdom is better than weapons of war. Just because you got a lot, just because you have a lot doesn't mean that the, the, the war goes to the strong. One center can ruin a whole lot. It doesn't matter how much a government has or how much weapons the military has. If you have fools running the show, your chance of success is not that high. I've seen one center destroy... The unity of a church. I've seen one sinner destroy um, a business, or at least wreck it so badly that it changed the whole culture of the business. I've worked for companies where one person, one person in the whole company, and their sin um, set the company back probably years because of their, their sinfulness. One sinner destroyeth much. So wisdom is better than the weapons of war. So starting at chapter number 10, we get into these individual proverbs. So as we read these, we have to remember what we just read here in the latter part of chapter number 9, that we are creatures of the sovereign God. And life isn't a mathematical formula. Sometimes, Things happen outside of our control. Some things, sometimes things happen contrary to our best efforts. Sometimes the good guy loses on this end. But it's not meaningless or it's not random. It's according to the, the sovereign plan of our God. Ultimately, God's people went out. Ultimately, all things work out for our good and for his glory. But life under the sun is, is what... Um, the preacher is talking about here, and so he wants us to live our life with this kind of wisdom. Why? Because when God tells us to do something, we ought to do it. Now these Proverbs that we're going to read are laws. They're not grace. They're laws. When God tells you to do something, that's the law. And the only person who's ever perfectly lived the life of Proverbs is Jesus Christ. Solomon wrote him, and he didn't even live him perfectly. Jesus Christ is the epitome of of wisdom. Jesus perfectly lived the life that Solomon lays out in Ecclesiastes and Proverbs as, as the perfect man, and you know what the world did to him. So Proverbs aren't the secret keys to getting everything you want out of life. The heavenly guides to walk in the fear of the Lord. One danger of driving is the other drivers. You might do everything right. You might obey the speed limit. You might wear your seatbelt. You might never text and drive. You might never drink and drive. But a drunk driver looking on Facebook while he's going 70 miles an hour through an intersection can change everything. There are things in a crooked world that are wrong and outside of our control. And so we shouldn't look at the Proverbs as the secret keys to getting everything we want out of life, but our guides from our Heavenly Father to walk in fear of the Lord, to walk and to live wisely in a crooked world for the glory of Christ. They help us to discern from light and darkness, from good and from bad, And that's why we walk in wisdom because it pleases the Lord. Is it worth it? Well, in this life it's worth it because it's never good to sin against God. And when you sin against God and walk in folly, there's a good chance you'll suffer for the sin now. So you have to ask, is a moment's pleasure now worth a lifetime of pain? Is a moment's pleasure now worth a lifetime of pain? Well, Ecclesiastes warns us of these, these pitfalls, and so I, I'm thankful for the gospel promises that the Lord has mercy and grace on us for His dear Son's sake. I'm thankful that He forgives sins and pardons the guilty, and has mercy on the weak and pitiful. Because I, whenever I read these, I don't, I say, boy, what a, what a failure! How. I have not lived up to this high mark of wisdom. But I remember also that the point of Proverbs is not to save me, but to guide me. If these Proverbs were to save us, we'd all be in a a load of trouble. But since we are saved by the blood of Christ and justified and forgiven and cleansed, this usage of the law is a helpful word from our Lord to guide us in walking in wisdom and to warn us of the pitfalls of sin. So in chapter 10, verse number 1, it says, Dead flies cause the ointment of the apothecary to send forth a stinking savor. So doth a little folly him that is in reputation for wisdom and honor. So how much poison do you want in your water? How much uh, deer scent do you want in your deodorant? Imagine having a perfume and cologne with only just a few drops of skunk musk. Well, no, just a little bit of skunk is bad, right? I don't, I don't want any of it, and a little bit would be bad. Well, that's the illustration we have here. You got. Um, a perfumer here that's making some nice ointment, and there's a few flies that got in it, and so just a couple flies. It's not not that bad. What makes the whole thing stink? Well, that's how we should look at sin. I mean, There's some bad smells that you carry with it for the rest of your life. There's a um, paper plant in Jessup, Georgia where we used to live, and I can mention that paper plant right now, and uh, my family could probably smell it, probably taste it just by thinking about it. I, I can, because it's a, it was such a bad, bad smell. A friend of mine said it smelled like money, because his family worked at that paper plant. But um, that, that, that odor, that aroma, it it makes you sick sometimes thinking about that bad smell. Well, that's what chapter 10, verse 1 is, is talking about. And that's how you got to look at sin. You don't want to say, well, how much deer scent do I want in my deodorant? You so say, I'm going to stay away from that. Where, where's the line where you get too close to a skunk? How close can you get to a skunk before it sprays you? Well, that's something I never want to find out. And I might be 50 feet away from it, but I'm not going to see if 49 feet is too close. right? If I saw it, I'm going to go the other direction. Well, that's how we ought to think of sin. Don't think of how close can I get to the edge before I go over. That's the wrong way of thinking about sin. It's not how much can I get away with. When guys and girls are dating, they want to know how much they can get away with before sinning. No, that's the wrong question to ask. Stay away from sin. Don't say how much how much, or how close, but don't mess around with sin. Understand that it's dangerous. Take you know, you can take drinking, for example. A person might say, well, the Bible says that there's, um, you know, you, there's examples of people drinking in the Bible. Okay, well, who are you going to drink with? There's not a lot of Bible studies going on um, with people drinking. So you're going to be drinking with the unwise and the fool. A wise man may have a lapse in judgment, so doth a little folly him in reputation for wisdom and honor. A wise man may have a lapse in judgment for just one moment, moment and ruin his life. So chapter so verse number one is telling you you gotta be careful, you gotta be wary of sin. And don't say, Well, I'm forgiven, I'm saved, it's all cleansed, and I'm all oh, okay. Well, there's consequences. There's consequences, and one moment's lapse can change the course of your life forever. Get wisdom and don't forsake it. Pursue it at all costs. Jay Fesco said, Pursue wisdom at all costs, because wisdom is not a thing but a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse number two, A wise man's heart is at his right hand, but a fool's heart is left hand. at his left hand. Yea, also when he that is a fool walketh by the way, his wisdom faileth him, and he saith to everyone that he is a fool. So what about verse number two? What's that right hand and left hand? Well, most people are right hand, right handed. Mm -hmm. So your right hand is your dominant hand, your strong hand. You see that in the scriptures, Jesus at the right hand of the Father. It talks about the the strength of God and his, his right hand to save. So it just talks about your strength. Well, the Bible doesn't speak of the heart as the organ, but the mind and the affections. It's used around 40 times in the book of Ecclesiastes alone in this way. So chapter 113, it says, And I gave my heart to seek out and search wisdom. And then verse 17, And I gave my heart to know wisdom and no madness. So it's not talking about the, the organ that pumps blood through your body. It's talking about your mind, your, your will, your, your, your affections. And so a wise man's heart is at his right hand. The wise man, therefore, acts according to his wisdom. To the right hand. To the, the hand that you're going to use all the time. The fool acts according to his folly. His emotions. Not towards the heart in the sense of wisdom, but towards his emotions in his flesh as the dominating factor. And so, you know, if you're if you're working and you've you got tools in your pocket, you're probably going to put the tool you reach for all the time in your right pocket and the one that you don't reach for so much in your left pocket. Because if you're up there doing something and, and you're trying to reach, you don't want to reach across your body and so forth. You well, the wisdom is at the right hand. Wisdom is, is how your life is motivated. For the fool, it's not wisdom, but it's folly. That is the, the leader of his life, the motivator. And so what happens is you get verse number three, that the fool walks by his way and, his, and wisdom does him no good. The fool's wisdom is folly and he lets everyone know it. So the fool lives by his folly and he's like a clown wearing a clown suit down the street. If you saw somebody dressed up like a clown walking down the street, would you say, well, there must be a doctor? Or there's somebody that has got an important business deal. No, you'd say, there goes a clown. Well, the fool announces who he is by his folly. If you live like a fool, you're going to be known as a fool because you're going to reap the life of the fool. It's going to be evident to everyone. Sometimes I see people walking when I go to work every morning. And I'm going to work and I think they're going to bed because... They're, they're pretty, pretty out of sorts, and you can tell they're out of sorts. And I, I don't ever see those people and say, well, there's somebody that's going to go um, open up the bank this morning. You can just look at them and, and say, well, there's somebody that hasn't slept all night and is probably hiring a kite because they're staggering around and stumbling around and holding their pants up with, with one arm and tripping and, and all sorts of things. You you can just look at them because of their lifestyle announces what they've been doing all night. And so that's that's what that's saying. You're gonna live like a fool. You don't have to tell everybody. Everybody can see the foolishness. Verse four. If the spirit of the ruler rise up against thee, leave not thy place for yielding pacify for yielding great offenses. There is an evil which I've seen under the sun as an error which proceedeth from the ruler. Folly is set in great dignity and the rich sit in a low place. I've seen servants upon horses and princes walking to servants upon the earth. If a ruler rise up in anger, the proverb says, don't leave your place. Don't run, don't quit, don't resign, but remain calm. Because oftentimes I can settle great offenses. In other words, you don't want to add to your trouble by adding to the offenses. But sometimes, patience and calm and meekness can weather the storm. So we can might apply that to a business. You know, if you mess up and the boss is letting you have it because you mess up, sometimes the best thing to do is just be quiet and take it and weather the storm, remain calm, and, and um, that sometimes will, will pacify the great offenses. So Solomon is giving a little bit of practical advice. Patience and grace and meekness in such situations sometimes can weather a storm. The preacher's seen another great e- evil, like the error that comes from the ruler. That's when the ruler is wrong. Folly is given great dignity and honor, and the rich sit in low places. Could you imagine a government ran by foolish people and then people who are wise and smart and industrious uh, just sit in the sidelines and are are not involved? I don't think we have to imagine too hard about that. Well, Solomon said that's a great evil. That's a great evil whenever folly and fools are set in places of, of dignity. The people who are industrious have power and rich or rich in wisdom, but they're in the place of servitude with no influence and forced to listen and to be led by a fool with great honor. It's backwards. The person with, with uh, principles, the person with wisdom, the person with integrity, the person with leadership, they ought to be the ones leading, leading the people, not the fool. But it's a great evil to have the fool in charge and the wise people following him. Solomon says it's like a servant riding the horse while the prince is walking beside it. It's out of order. The servant shouldn't be riding the horse. The prince ought to be riding the horse. The servant ought to be walking. But Solomon said whenever a fool's in charge and the wise are in subjection to him, it's backwards and it's a great evil. Verse number eight. He that diggeth a pit shall fall into it, and whosoever breaketh a hedge, a serpent shall bite him. Whoso removeth stones shall be hurt therewith, and he that cleaveth wood shall be endangered thereby. Sin has a way of backfiring. Doing evil against your neighbor has a way of coming back on you. So a man who digs a pit to trap his neighbor ends up falling into it himself. A man who sneaks into another person's property, to break the fence or to tear down the hedge to rob him or tears down the fence to move it or to steal the flock might end up getting bit by a snake while he's, that's hiding in the hedge while he's tearing it down. The man who tears down the stones, maybe of a house or a fence or a landmark, might end up getting hurt by him when he pulls them down. The man who splits timber of the house or the fence might be in danger of getting hurt whenever he's breaking it. So, when you tear down doctrinal standards, you're in danger of being crushed under the house that you're tearing down. When you remove God's landmarks, you're apt to be broken by the fence. Sometimes deconstruction is necessary work. Sometimes you have to unlearn something that you believed was right and then have found out that it was wrong. But sometimes deconstruction is just a sinful way to undo what was built. And the end result it's not a better building but the destruction of what was good sometimes people tear down things just because they're old and not and not consider that that old tradition has a purpose just because something is an old tradition doesn't mean it's outdated or needs modification Sometimes a wall is there to separate one room from another, but sometimes a wall is a load-bearing wall. Sometimes a fence is there for decoration, or sometimes it's there to keep the wild beasts out. So if a man just comes along and starts tearing down fences and tearing down walls without any thought, without any understanding of why the fence is there or why the wall was there, why the building is there, why the stones are there, then you're in danger of tearing the stone down on stones down upon your own head others hack up the timbers of the church because they think it's too old fashioned the SBC is going through that right now because people are saying that the biblical teaching uh, pastors have to be a man is outdated and so they're trying to tear down the walls of biblical authority to fit in with the times well, what they're going to do is pull down the timbers upon their own head so you have to be careful whenever you tear down and you move and you break up because what you might be breaking up might be your own to your own hurt verse number 10 if the iron be blunt and he do not wet the edge then must he put it to more strength but wisdom is profitable to direct so i remember when my grandpa would take us out to do the mowing. He'd hop off the truck and get his mowing side. And he'd stand there before we went out to cut. And uh, some guys would hop off and grab a sign and just get to work. But my grandpa would just stand there and he'd take his stone and and he'd um, work on the blade. And those guys have about a 5 minutes head start on him. But it only took him a short time to catch up. Because what they were doing, they were taking a dull blade and just trying to hack their way through the grass. And here he was, um, 70 years old, out working these 20-year-olds because he sharpened his blade. He took five minutes, sharpened his blade, and then let that tool do all the work for him. And so it took them twice the effort and a whole lot longer to cut with a dull blade than it did for him to take a little time and sharpen his blade. The point is, if you think about it a little bit and plan a little bit and don't just jump into something and start, start going full speed ahead, well, what are we going to do? I don't know, but we got to do something. You end up working twice as hard. So this proverb uh, could have a lot of applications. It means one thing, doesn't it? The, the meaning of it is, if, you're, if, you're stump, if your blade is blunt and you don't wet the edge, then you're going to have to put a whole lot more work into it to get anything done. So it's more profitable to sharpen it before you get going. That's what it means, but how many implications? It probably has untold and unlimited uh, implications and applications for this text. It's easier in the long run to take time to prepare your work than it does to jump in without thought or preparation. So just think about it. What kind of application might you put with this? What are some areas that this wisdom might apply for you? You could probably come up with several that I didn't even think of. But that's how this wisdom works. It's a, it's a general statement of a truth that can be applied uh, in multiple different ways. So it, it means one thing, but it can be applied in many different ways. So I just thought I'd take that example to, to show how a proverb could be used whether you're talking about literally mowing the grass, like I did, or you might talk about you're in study the scriptures, or you can talk about um, preparing to do your work. You have... Would it, would it be better to take a day and plan things out or take three days to go back over and undo what you did because you didn't plan it out? Right? So there's all, there's all kinds of applications you might make from this if we prayerfully consider this proverb. Verse 11 says, Surely the serpent will bite without an enchantment, And the babbler is no better. There's an art to snake charming. Um, Maybe you've seen it on TV. Um, The guy plays the flute and the cobra comes out of the basket and and dances. I read that some men um, would sew the snake's mouth together. And that way it couldn't bite him. So he'd catch the cobra defang it, take its fangs out and sew its mouth together. Um, I read some people actually do it, but they, it's not the music, but it's the motion that they go through as they play the flute and so forth, but regardless, it takes a little bit of forethought, doesn't it? You don't just walk up to a cobra with a trombone and start blaring away um, and, and think that that's going to be, be charmed. And, and so it takes some forethought take some planning, take some preparation. Well, somebody, a babbler, somebody who doesn't guard their tongue is just like that. The tongue is more dangerous than a cobra. If you read the book of James and you know that, what a small member the tongue is and what great damage it can do. And so we ought to have a little forethought more than the snake charmer with our words. There's nothing wrong with not having anything to say. A wise person controls and considers what he's going to say. The words of a wise man, verse 12, are gracious, but the lips of a fool will swallow up himself. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolish, and the end of his talk is mischievous madness. A fool also is full of words. A man cannot tell what shall be and what shall be after him who can tell. So a wise person, as Paul says, has their um, words seasoned with grace. Words of a wise man are gracious. When a wise man speaks, grace should exude, not not, uh, judgment in the sense of pharisaical self-righteousness, but grace and mercy and truth. I'm sure it exudes the words of the wise. The fool devours himself with his foolish talk. He's his own worst enemy. He starts foolish and ends in madness. He can't be quiet. He has to say something even when there's nothing to say. And once he starts talking, it's hard to say what will come out of his mouth. Sometimes a person's mouth is his own worst enemy. And they just start talking and start talking and and just can't stop. And the more they talk, the bigger hole they dig for themselves. Well, the Bible says that's foolishness. A fool does that. And so a wise man considers and controls his mouth. Verse 15 says, "...the labor of the foolish wearieth every one of them, because he knoweth not how to go into the city." So now we're going to pick up the pace a little bit. We're going to go a little bit quicker here. The foolish person just wears everybody out. You ever had the misfortune of working with a fool? If you you have, you know what that means. The foolish weareth every one of them. The simplest task can just become some Herculean effort. Um, They're told to take this tool and go put it over there on the bench. And that becomes a... A 30-minute explanation, and you could have done it 10 times faster than explaining for him to do the simplest tax. It just wears you out. Well, that's, that's what this scripture is talking about. One commentator said, Some are overwhelmed by nothing. It's like the boy who gets lost on an escalator. He just wears people out. Um, verse 16. Woe to thee, O land, when thy king is a child, and thy princes eat in the morning. Blessed art thou, O land, when thy king is the son of nobles, and thy princes eat in due season, for strength and not for drunkenness. Our leaders aren't children, but they're not children by Methuselah standards, but they act like children. Leaders who eat in the morning is banqueting as soon as they wake up. They live for pleasure. And what they can get out of life. Not for strength, not in the appropriate time, but they live for drunkenness. And that woe unto thee, O land, when thy king is a child. And whenever our leaders, the princes, eat in the morning. When they live for themselves and they, they drink and carry on and do everything for themselves, woe unto the people. Verse 18 By much slothfulness the building decayeth, and through idleness the hands of the house droppeth through. A feast is made for laughter, and wine maketh merry, but money answereth all things. Curse not the king, know not my thought, and curse not the rich, in thy bedchamber, for a bird of the air shall carry the voice, and that which hath wings shall tell the matter. It doesn't take much for a building to fall apart. Everything decays, so all you have to do is nothing, and it'll fall apart. General maintenance um, will take care of a lot of things. I heard one guy today say that, um, he said, uh, changing your oil's uh, insurance. Insurance from ha- not having to buy a new car. And that's, that's pretty appropriate. It's just small things. You don't have to do anything to tear your car up, but you do have to do same things, things to keep it going. Laziness doesn't keep things at all. Laziness makes everything worse. 19, the purpose of a feast is laughter. Wine will make a merry heart. Money answers your problems. So don't give up on life, but get to work and earn some money because you can't buy tires with a merry heart. They they cost money. In verse 20, be careful how you speak to other people, especially those in power. You never know who's listening. Remember, the person who likes to gossip with you might like to gossip about you so don't talk about people in power. A little birdie might go and tell them. And so whenever I was talking about the leaders earlier, we can just say I was joking. <laughs> but that's what that's talking about. You've got to be careful. You don't, you don't know who's, who's listening. Um, in chapter number 11, um, quickly as we close, verse 1 and 2, it says, Cast thy bread upon the waters, for thou shalt find it after many days, and give a portion to seven, and also to eight, for thou knowest not what evil shall be upon the earth. Cast, gift, don't hold on to your possessions. Life is unpredictable. Take the bread and throw it on the water. You don't know what might happen. Be generous with what God has given to you. Be generous with what you have now and reap eternal rewards. Invest, because giving... Is like giving unto the Lord. Give your portion. Because you don't know what evil shall be upon the earth. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. One commentator says, some say that life is uncertain, so we should eat dessert first. Solomon says that life is uncertain, so we ought to give away our dessert. Give and be generous. Verse 3, if the clouds be full of rain, They empty themselves upon the earth and if the tree fall towards the south or towards the north in the place where the tree falleth, there it shall be. Rain falls when there's clouds above us and trees lay where they fall. There's an orderliness to life. Trees don't fall to the south and then the next day hop up and go to the north. Rain clouds bring rain. But verse number four, he that observeth the wind shall not sow and he that regardeth the clouds shall not reap. As thou knowest not, what is the way of the spirit, nor how the bones do grow in the womb of her, her that is with child? Even so, thou knowest not the works of God who maketh all. In the morning sow thy seed, in the evening withhold not thy hand. For thou knowest not whether shall prosper either this or that, or whether they both shall be alike good. So This brings us full circle. If you stare at the cloud and wonder if it's going to rain, You're not going to do any work. Sometimes the rain clouds come in and they just blow right by. Yes, there's an orderliness to it, but sometimes it it looks like it's going to rain and it's not going to. So you just got to do your work when you can. You got to take your chance. You can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. You can make your best bet about the future. You can make your, your best guess if it's going to rain, if you can cut your hay, if... You can get your garden planted before the rain comes. But ultimately, these things are in God's hands. You just have to trust Him. Life is unpredictable. I don't know the works of God any more than I know how bones grow. It's all in God's hands. But I know that they do. And I trust God in all those things. So do your work. Don't withhold your hand. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. You don't know what tomorrow holds. But sometimes life is unfair and sometimes life is unpredictable. So what do we do? Well, we trust God. We trust in God's sovereign purposes. We walk in wisdom and we rest in Christ's promises for his redeemed people. Life is unfair, but it's not unordered. It's in the hands and control of our God. So we follow him and trust in him and know that everything's going just like he purposed it to go. I pray the Lord would help us.